Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 111. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just search for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to look for those things, all you got to do is go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all little buttons for all the social media accounts that I subscribe to, and you can go and click those buttons and uh, like away. Also, uh, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com and you give me an email address, I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly, also Forgotten Founders. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. And you can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Anything you send me is greatly appreciated. Also, this podcast is going out with just a few days. I'm talking less than a week left in the Blame Hamilton contest to get a master level membership to libertyclassroom.com. Five days. When the, or actually four days, when the, uh, when the book comes out on the 18th, the contest is over. And you'll miss out. So you want to go to BlameHamilton.com, pre-order your copy of How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. If you uh, pre-order one, I'll send you an, an e-book, The Jeffersonian Solution, and you'll also be entered into the contest. If you pre-order two or more, you'll get a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton and the e-book. So you want to go on out there and do that. Uh, plus, like I said, you will get entered into a contest to get a master-level membership to Liberty, uh, LibertyClassroom.com. So you're going to want to do that. Plus, if you come in second or third place, there's going to be three winners. You'll get uh, a membership to Liberty Classroom. And if you already are a member, uh, you get a gift card to Amazon.com. So you can't, you can't miss out on this thing. It is a great contest, uh, great prizes. You're going to want to get in on it. Also, as I mentioned before, I think in the last podcast, if you can't get enough of Brian McClanahan, and you want more podcasts. Well, I do this twice a week, but I also do the Abbeville Institute podcast once a week, and that comes out usually on Saturdays. Uh, so you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org, and you can find all the over 80 episodes of that particular podcast there, and that one focuses on uh, all things Southern. So you can get Brian McClanahan three times a week through a podcast if you just go on out and get the Abbeville Institute podcast as well. Uh, and if you do like this podcast, please go on to iTunes and leave a review. 
more reviews means more listens. So uh, it's um, uh, a nice thing for you to do. If you like the podcast, please review it. Okay, well, this uh, episode is actually a user-generated episode. The next episode I'm going to do is going to focus on a part of the Constitution. This one does, too. Of course, we've got, quote-unquote, Constitution Day coming up September 17th, which uh, is a strange holiday because uh, I don't think the founders would have celebrated Constitution Day, particularly on that day, since it was the day the the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia but not ratified. It didn't mean anything yet. Uh, So... Uh, the the uh, user, or the listener, I should say, listener-generated episode, uh, the listener sent me a link to another podcast from the National Constitution Center dealing with the 17th Amendment. And they had two constitutional, quote-unquote, scholars on there, uh, one from the uh, Federalist Society, the other, so ostensibly a conservative, and one, I can't remember where he was from, but ostensibly a, a, a liberal or left-winger, and dealing with the uh, with the 17th Amendment. And um, the thing that I found curious, now I listened to the podcast and they said a lot of things that were correct uh, about this particular issue. In one case, you know, they, they were one was against it, one was for it. The 17th Amendment, if you don't know what the 17th Amendment did, it's the direct election of senators. And I've been highly critical of the 17th Amendment in various places. Uh, so I, I will talk about that. <clears throat> talk about that. But um, the interesting thing about their position at the beginning, which I found very curious, is that they minimized why the Senate was created, uh, the, the important reason, the primary reason why the Senate was created. They did mention it, but they seemed to poo-poo this reason. Both, both, uh, both scholars seemed to, seemed to kind of minimize this reason, but the Senate was created as the one true uh, example of federalism in the Constitution for the United States. It was the one federal feature of the document. In reality, when you look at the document and you look at how this thing came into being, the Senate was put there to maintain the Union as under the Articles of Confederation. So let's start with a little lesson about what James Madison wanted with the Virginia Plan. So Madison comes into Philadelphia and he proposes the Virginia Plan. Of course, um, he wrote it. He didn't actually present it, um, but he wrote it. And so the idea of the Virginia Plan was essentially to create a national government. And when you look at the Virginia Plan, it, some people call it the large state plan. It wasn't really a large state plan. It was a national plan. So Madison's idea was to essentially abolish the state lines in this bicameral legislature. Each house would be chosen based on the amount of people you had in the states. So uh, this this was a, a situation where you basically wouldn't have had the states anymore. Uh, and you would have had districts created out of these states. And as the Virginia plan said, you would have this bicameral legislature where uh, the rules for election in the Senate, what became the Senate, would have been the same for the House. And even though the state legislatures would choose these members of the second House, you know, some states would have more members of the Senate than others, or the upper House than others. So there was not a co-equal role of the states in this upper House. Essentially, again, what you're doing is you're removing the boundaries between the states. Even though the state legislatures get to choose 
the senators, you say, well, the states are still represented. Yeah, but you know, Virginia would have had more senators than Delaware, for example. So this was not a federal feature. You're creating a national government where essentially it's based on population. Representation is based on population uh, in each state. So you're removing the borders of the states, so to speak, in a way. Uh, now, you're not saying the states are abolished because you still have to elect these people in state legislatures and the, and the uh, representation of the states uh, still matters. But, you know, a state like Delaware or a state like South Carolina or a state like uh, Connecticut or Rhode Island would have had maybe one senator. And then you would have had a situation where Virginia would have had many more, Massachusetts, New York. So you've created a situation where you essentially base everything on population. That's removing the boundaries of the states. The states become unimportant at that point. Even though the state legislatures choose those senators, they become unimportant. So this is not a federal feature, and, and people pounced on that. Because remember, under the Articles of Confederation, we had a Congress where each state was equal. It didn't matter the size of the state. You could send two to seven members. Every state could send two to seven members. And it didn't really matter how big or small the state was. They could choose two, or they could choose seven, or they could choose five to send to the Congress. And every state was equal in that government. So what Madison had done, and he was very clear about this, and he was worried after the Constitution was, um, was written, but Madison's uh, greatest fear was, of course, factions in the states, places like Virginia, where Patrick Henry had a tremendous amount of power. And, of course, Patrick Henry didn't like James Madison, and after the Constitution was, was ratified and Madison wanted to be part of this government, he was almost blocked from serving in any capacity in the government, supposedly a government that he created, the father of the Constitution, which I think is a misnomer, but still, because Patrick Henry tried to maneuver, maneuver it to where Madison would have to go around with cap in hand to be elected to the Congress, to the, to the House of Representatives. Uh, he had to beg people to get in. I mean, this is... Um, uh, quite funny if you think about it. But, you know, Madison was worried about people like Patrick Henry and George Clinton in New York and John Hancock in Massachusetts, people that were so powerful in their states that they essentially dominated the states. And he didn't think that uh, the current structure was working. And one of the other things he proposed in that Virginia plan that didn't see the light of day was to have a federal negative over state laws. He proposed it, and it was outright rejected. Um, so, we've got this idea coming into Philadelphia, 1787, presented by uh, Randolph, but written by Madison, that we would have a national government, a supreme national government. That was then debated, and of course, then you had Patterson of New Jersey come up with the New Jersey plan, which in some ways was more powerful than the Virginia plan, because uh, some of the structure and what it could do with a with a supremacy, what quote unquote supremacy clause in that particular plan, but it maintained the federal union as under the Articles of Confederation. Each state would have the same vote. Uh, one state, one vote. It's often called the small state plan because, again, this is a people are looking at this and saying, oh, the small states are not going to be represented. And the small states are worried about this. So we're going to get a plan. No, that, there were people in the large states that were also worried about it. Madison's plan 
to remove the states from the equation when it came to the general government. And so the New Jersey plan maintained a federal union, a federal republic of independent states. And in the next podcast, I'll talk about constitutions. I'm not going to talk about the U.S. Constitution. I'm going to talk about something else. I don't want to steal my thunder or ruin the surprise. But uh, I am going to take Constitution Day in a different direction. So uh, Patterson's plan would have maintained this federal union. And so the compromise we get, the Great Compromise, which was written by Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and this is, again, why people say it was a small state. Well, um, Roger Sherman wanted to ensure, and again, there were some large state members in New York, in Virginia. There were some people that were concerned about the federal union, not just in these small states. In fact, the, uh, you know, I think that you can say that um, uh, the entire New York delegation, except Alexander Hamilton, were concerned about the power of the states. Uh, there was only three of them there, but uh, you know, Hamilton was uh, not there after he realized they're not going to get a national government. He went home supposedly to, uh, to deal with some personal matters, but really because he wasn't going to get his way, so what's the point of showing up? He only came back later. Uh, now, so we get the Connecticut or Great Compromise, and what we have is a House of Representatives that is based on population, so the larger states are going to have more people, just like we have today, and we get a Senate that's got equal representation, that has equal representation in, uh, in regard to the states. Each state gets two senators. So each state is equal in the upper chamber, and if you think about the upper chamber, according to the Constitution, uh, the Senate has more power in many ways, in the House. And why? Well, because it's a check on the entire system. It is a check on the House of Representatives because any bill that passes through the House has to have uh, the concurrence of the Senate. They have to say, okay, we agree with this bill. So it's a, it is a negative over the House, so to speak. When the president appoints a Supreme Court justice or another ambassador or you know some member of the government, uh, where you have presidential powers, the Senate has to approve those appointments uh, as Congress decrees by law, but definitely for Supreme Court justices and cabinet members. So the Senate is a check then on the executive branch. Also, if the president, through diplomacy, through the State Department, which came later, but through diplomacy, negotiates a treaty, well, the Senate has to ratify that treaty. So it has a check on executive power over foreign policy. The Senate, by getting to choose if it wants to uh, approve the nominations of, of uh, federal judges, has a check over the federal judiciary. Now, who is the Senate? This is the key to understanding the entire Senate. The Senate is the representatives of the states at least originally, because the state legislatures, even Madison said the state legislatures should choose the senators, but the state legislatures chose the senators. Now, why would they want to do that? And it was made very clear in the ratification process why they wanted to ensure that the states, the state legislatures would choose the senators, because this was the state check on the entire system. Even the opponents of the Constitution recognized that, that is the one thing they weren't highly critical of. And they said, okay, yeah, we've got a Senate where the states are still paramount. This is the 
legislative body, so to speak, of the states. They can control what this national part of the government, the House of Representatives, will do, and they can control the executive branch, and they can control the judicial branch because of appointment, the control over appointment powers. Now, they didn't think it went far enough. In fact, there was a critique that this Senate was going to be aristocratic and it was going to be a part and parcel of the executive branch because the vice president would sit in the Senate and so therefore the executive branch would have control over the Senate. There was some critique of the Senate in that particular way. But when you look at how the Constitution was ratified and you look at what the the friends of the Constitution, the proponents of the document were saying, one of the things they kept saying is, hey, this is great, we got a Senate, Uh, the Senate is uh, is uh, going to be a check on the entire system because if the states choose, they can just not send any senators. They just won't send their senators to the, to the uh, Congress, and then the whole system will collapse. This is how the Senate was argued over and over again by the friends of the Constitution, proponents of the document. The Senate would be this truly federal feature of the United States Constitution, or the Constitution for the United States. Just like under the Articles. It maintained the union of the Articles. And so when these two scholars were talking about the Senate, they minimized this part uh, of the Senate. I mean, they, they kind of, I mean, one of, the, one of these scholars, you know, talked about it and said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, this is why we need to keep the Senate. But they started saying, you know, this thing didn't really work that way anyways. And in that particular way, I would agree. The problem with the Constitution for the United States, because that's what it says in the, in the preamble. I mean, that's why I call it that. People say it's the United States Constitution or the Constitution for, uh, of the United States. It's the Constitution for the United States. It says it in the preamble. That's, that's what it's called. And that's, a, that's an important distinction to make because uh, that means that uh, this is a plural document. The United States plural. Constitution, Constitution for the United States, meaning this union of states. So uh, the important thing, what, what they said is that, you know, well, this thing didn't work. And that is, a, that is a major flaw of the Constitution in that there's no mechanism for enforcing, say, the Tenth Amendment. It doesn't exist. This is what Calhoun was talking about in his disquisition. We need a mechanism to ensure that the states can check the power of the central authority should it overstep its bounds. This is what he came up with, the concurrent majority, that idea. We need to have some mechanism there to ensure that minorities, in this case, whether it's a group of states or one state, can be protected from the majority. I mean, what's wrong with that? This is what I can't understand when people criticize Calhoun. I mean, what's wrong with the minority minority being protected from the majority? There's nothing wrong with that, Uh, particularly if it's an entire section New England, the South, the Mid-Atlantic States, the West, the West Coast, the East Coast, whatever it is. Uh, and uh, basically what you would have, in his opinion, then, is a government that has very limited powers because there's only a few things that the states are actually going to agree on. Everything else is going to be, uh, <laughs> is going to be left to the states, which is the way it should have been. Now, what about the Senate, though? There, what, what the scholar said is that, well, yeah, I mean, so the states were going to have control of this, but there's no recall mechanism in the Constitution. It doesn't say that the states can recall their senators if they don't do what they say. But this is actually not understanding the true nature of the union. 
when the proponents of the document went out and said, well, the states can just you know, not send their senators. Uh, yes, in the, in the Constitution itself, there's nothing in the language that says the states may recall their senators. The states may provide instructions for how the senators should vote. It also doesn't say anything about how senators should be elected uh, besides the state legislatures uh, and how they would do that. It has to have the same requirements as the um, whatever the states decide, how they're going to elect these senators in the state legislatures. And so, I mean, it doesn't say that. So the states had to come up with that with that policy. And eventually, as one of the scholars points out, they came up with different things, canvassing, and then there was this quote-unquote Oregon uh, method where uh, – you know, the, the candidates for the legislature would be, uh, you know, elected based on who they would support for the Senate and these kind of things. So, yeah, I mean, the states were coming up with ways to choose the senators, and some of them shaded into more popular elections of the U.S. of the senators. So uh, we, we start getting that. But again, it's the Constitution is silent on these things because the states had to work all that stuff out. In other words, the states, because the only prohibitions, as I mentioned in, in the podcast on secession, the only prohibitions on the states are contained in Article 1, Section 10, and it doesn't say anything about recalling senators or telling senators how they should vote, and if they don't do that, then you ask them home, and uh, you hold a special election for another senator. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything about that. Now, you could, you could make an argument, well, you can't do that because, you know, it's clear in the Constitution every six years. It doesn't say that, uh, you know, you can do this and then hold another election. Well, I mean, what happens if a senator dies? And the, 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 uh, then there is the uh, appointment of a senator by the governor, and then there's going to be an election. Well, what's the difference in saying, well, I mean, we're just going to, if the senator doesn't follow our instructions, this comes from the state legislature then, if the senator doesn't follow our instructions, then we're going to recall that senator and we'll hold another election for another senator. It doesn't say anything that you can't do that. And because it says you can't do that, according to Article 1, Section 10, that means the states, in essence, could do that. This is how I would argue it. Now, I know some people are probably going into uh, fits out there because of, <gasps> what are you saying, McClanahan? You're saying that, that you're, you're, you're saying implied powers. You, you can't do that. This is what, I, of course, I talked about in the, in the last podcast. You're implied powers. You're, you're not strict constructionist because you're saying implied powers. <clears throat> I'm talking about the states and the states doing what they can do. In fact, I mean, just by suggesting that if the senators don't do what you want or the Congress is going beyond its power and the Senate just says, we're not holding, the, the states say, we're not holding an election. We're not going to hold an election. We're not going to send a senator to the Congress. But in essence, you're saying, well, I mean, th then the states can decide when they're going to hold elections. What's the difference in recalling one? So this argument that, yeah, well, um, as the erudite uh, scholars here, uh, we're going to say that there's a no uh, recall mechanism. And uh, because of that, uh, the Senate didn't work the way it was supposed to do. Well, I could say this: basically what happens is the, state just, the states lost their backbone. However... Uh, you can see that the effect of the states on the Senate, even up to 1861, when these senators from these southern states started withdrawing from the Senate, they were doing so because they said, this is the will of my state, and therefore I am going to leave because I represent my state. 
even if they didn't want to. So when Andrew Johnson decided to stick around in the Senate, he was violating the whole principle of the Senate. In that, the state of Tennessee had withdrawn from the Union, and Andrew Johnson decided that, ah, I'm not, I'm not withdrawn from, I'm, I'm staying right here. The legislature of the state no longer uh, recognized the United States Constitution. The people of the state of Tennessee, through a convention, decided to withdraw from the Union. And now, uh, so the state of Tennessee no longer recognized the United States Constitution or the Constitution for the United States as being the uh, governing document of their union. They recognized the Confederate States of America, its Constitution. So what about the 17th Amendment? So along comes the 17th Amendment, which allows for direct election of United States senators, and it destroys the entire purpose of the Senate as drafted and then ratified by the founding generation, because now you have popularity contests. And this thing was not, as one of the scholars pointed out, universally agreed to. Uh, you know, there were still states up until that point that were using the legislatures. Now, some states had decided they were going to use a more popular method to elect their uh, senators, but there were many states that were still using the tried-and-true method of the state legislatures selecting the senators, and they did have some control over these people. Because if you wanted to be in the Senate, you had to get the approval and the support of the state legislature, and so you kind of had to go their way. Now, the argument from the progressives was that, oh, gosh, this is creating a situation where the parties control this thing, you're having these smoke-filled rooms, and you got these uh, U.S. senators in there, and they're, all they're doing is the will of the party. They're not really supporting what the state wants, the people of the state wants, and these kind of things. So we need to control that. We need to, we need to have popular control over these senators. So essentially what you've done now is created a national government where you can have foreign money, meaning money from outside of your state, come in to influence your election. Uh, you know, and of course, this idea that we're going to get rid of the 17th Amendment, it comes up every now and, again, now and again. I think Mike Huckabee just recently said, we need to get rid of the 17th Amendment because of the uh, obstruction of the Senate and some of the things that are going on uh, in the Congress. You know, the repeal of, of Obamacare, for example, and how the Senate blocked that. So we need to, re we need to remove the 17th Amendment uh, because this uh, is preventing good legislation from making it through. Uh, and if you look at the legislatures and the number of legislatures that are controlled by Republicans, if you just want to look at it on a party basis, yeah, the, uh, the Senate would be drastically different because you would have Republican legislatures selecting Republicans. So you would have more Republicans in the United States Senate. However, that really doesn't matter because it's Republicans that block the repeal of Obamacare. I mean, this is so we're getting into party problems here and saying Republicans are going to save us, which the Republicans aren't going to save us. I mean, they never have. Uh, the Republican Party has been problematic from its inception in many ways. Uh, but it's always been a sectional party. It's always been a national party interested in, in nationalism, not by national meaning that they represent the nation, the union as a whole. They're a very, uh, it's a very sectional party with, with its own specific interests which may fly in the face of the Union as a whole. I mean, as we've seen, as the Republican Party was uh, throwing the United States into war. So um, it's, it's not the savior. And so by saying the Republicans, we just had this, remove this direct, remove this, uh, direct election of senators, we'll, we'll create a new situation. Yeah, I mean, you'd have more Republicans probably. I think you know, over 30 states now are controlled by 
Repub the Republican Party in the legislature. So you would have over 60 members of the Senate easily being Republicans. The Democrats would be a, just an irrelevant minority in the, in the legislative process. If, again, Republicans were as solid as Democrats on what they believed in, which they're not. You have different factions in the Republican Party. Essentially, what we have, we have far lefties and the Democrats who are able to control the Democrat Party, and the, the conservatives in the Republican Party aren't able to do that because you've got moderates, you've got, uh, you know, kind of, you know, neoconservatives, which control the Republican Party. So th there's always that battle. So removing the 17th Amendment could supposedly solve the problem, but I think the real problem is that, yeah, repealing the 17th Amendment, I'm all for, because it would return the union, it would have one federal portion of the union again. But also, because people use this argument, well, I mean, we need to have some type of check on the, on the system, well, then the state should propose, through an amendment, that they could recall senators if you wanted expressly uh, spelled out in the Constitution, then the states can give instructions to senators, and when they don't follow those instructions, then the senator will be recalled, and we'll have another election. This would make the senators essentially the agents of the states. So uh, that was that was the design. I mean, you did see even in the 19th century, the late 18th century, as we had this first Congress, these first Congresses, you did see states sending instructions to their senators, and sometimes the senators followed through and sometimes they didn't. When they didn't, the states would often get somebody else in there the next cycle. So the states still did have control, um, but it it wasn't maybe as strong, didn't have as much teeth as some people would suggest that the, the founding generation thought it should have. Though I can make an argument it did. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, the way the states could have handled this if they just followed through on what they actually could do, because again, only the uh, items in Article 1, Section 10 are prohibited to the states. And that means the states can do anything else. They can do anything else because the states created the general government and their power was unlimited except by Article 1, Section 10, whereas the general government's powers were limited by the Constitution itself. Their powers are enumerated, granted. The state powers are unlimited. This is how James Wilson essentially said you know, the State House Yard speech, which I talked about in, the, in, uh, uh, in meaning what the, when the powers of the general government compared to those of the states. So we have to look at it that way. Uh, the 17th Amendment needs to go. But it, we need to ensure that, one, either people understand what the states could do, or two, we have an express um, outline of what the states will do should the senators not follow the will of the state. They are there to represent the state in the United States Congress. It was the truly federal part of uh, that document, the Constitution for the United States, and we should we should recognize that. And this is why I think these scholars, they pointed out one thing they said was, you know, the Senate was there to be this aristocratic check on the entire system. And you can see that. I mean, certainly the founding generation was suspicious of democracy. And the Senate was, uh, was a different type of legislative body uh, because it wasn't directly elected by the people, because it had a higher threshold for being involved in it. Uh, it was supposed to be this more learned institution, uh, more uh, uh, sagacious and... Uh, the fact is that it 
it and it did have that in some ways. I mean, you had some of the best minds in the Senate at one time or another, um, but it, it didn't have the critique was it didn't have the the uh, teeth that it needed. The states didn't have the teeth that they needed to try to keep this thing in line and maintaining a truly federal part. And so that's one thing I think the scholars minimized too much was that why the Senate was created. They mentioned the aristocratic part and placed more emphasis on that than the federal part. And that's the important thing, that federal part, maintaining this federal union, keeping federalism alive. That was the important part of the Senate. And really, in in the whole scheme of things, why the United States is in trouble, because we've lost federalism. That is the whole, I mean, look, that's think locally, act locally. That's the whole thing. It's federalism. We've lost our way because we've lost federalism. And the 17th Amendment didn't necessarily destroy federalism. Uh, it, it helped. What destroyed federalism is people stopped thinking that way. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, the states have a lot more power than they, than they believe, uh, and they could stand up to some of these things. And, of course, a lot of this requires education because judges and lawyers are going to have to, I mean, we're going we're gonna to hash these things out in court, and so if judges and lawyers believed in federalism, well, then we'd have no problem. I mean, the 14th Amendment, for example, would be no problem if we just abided by the slaughterhouse cases of 1873. We'd have no problem with the 14th Amendment. But we had judges who started believing something opposite to that. Even though in the Justice Miller in the slaughterhouse cases was a Lincoln appointee, knew very well what the intent of the 14th Amendment was and uh, sided with the original intent, which was not incorporation uh, of the Bill of Rights, uh, and uh, we just had Hugo Black go off the rails with that. So uh, that's also in the book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope this, uh, this, this discussion of the 17th Amendment helps you understand the 17th Amendment and why, the original intent of the Senate and why the 17th Amendment did destroy that in many ways. Uh, but this, repealing the 17th Amendment itself is not going to solve the problem uh, if we don't have people that believe in the powers of the states or we don't have some express provision in the Constitution through an amendment again after repeal it saying the states can give instructions to senators and they can recall those senators if they choose to do so. Now, there, uh, before I say that, there was before I leave, there was, there was uh, some language put in by the states in the ratifying conventions to have an amendment that would have allowed for recall of senators, and this was rejected. Uh, no explanation really is given about that, but... Um, there were some people concerned uh, in New York, for example, about the uh, potential for the Senate to go beyond and uh, you know violate its its true intent, which was to serve as the agents of the states. Again, no no reason was given while it was rejected. I I think that maybe people thought that um, well uh, this is going to be uh, this is irrelevant because we can do this anyways. We don't need an express. Uh, language saying we can do this. So um, it wasn't clear. Uh, but no senator was ever recalled. The senators were given instructions, though they were removed the next election cycle if they didn't do what the state wanted them to do. So that did happen. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.